All right, welcome back to another post Musky Expo edition of Backlash Podcast. We want to thank everybody for taking time out this winter to uh, come out and see us at the expos. I would say this was a you know a successful year on the road. It was a a long a, a long but short year on the road. It was kind of condensed this year with the Musky shows kicking off in late January and then running through this past weekend or, or, or the weekend before, depending on when you listen to this. You know, Brad and I were recording this on the Wednesday after the Wisconsin Muskie Expo, and for the record, I am definitely tired, and it's been, you know, a long couple weeks. Doing back-to-back expos is, it's a little tough, especially with the uh, weather that we had leaving Minnesota. Kind of left it even uh, a little bit shorter turnaround, so I think I spent, I don't know, roughly like seven or eight out of like 10 or 11 days in a hotel. And so it was, uh, it was a little bit rough, but you know, hopefully everybody over the winter, they enjoyed those expo editions of the bot of the podcast that we did. I know the other one released today. Like I said, we're actually a week early, Brad. I don't know. What are we doing here? This doesn't even seem right that we'd not recording, like just under the gun getting to the next episode. Well, that happens, Jeff, when we schedule these, like, I think it was about four weeks ago we scheduled this one that we're doing today. So that's what takes place, I guess. You know, you, you set a a spot that you have to get after, and um, I don't know. It's pretty amazing, though. Being a week ahead is not a bad thing. No, it was. We did schedule this one a long time out. I had to go way, scrolling way back through my text messages to see when this was even going to take place. I knew we had something going on after the expo, and... Uh, I think we actually have another one too that we're that or or it's close to getting wrapped up, but I need to dial back on it because I said like I think Carrie sent a text out during like the middle of all this, and I'm like I can't even think about this until I figure out what my schedule even is. I don't hardly even know what day it is. Like I said, every day kind of ran together. It was just race, race, race for the past two weeks, and you know, like I said, I'm super thankful and grateful of you know all the support that we saw over the winter. It was unbelievable, Brad. Likewise, Jeff. I mean. Uh... Without the people coming to the shows and uh, purchasing some baits, there's no way we could run up and down the road. So truly grateful myself, and I know Carrie is as well, and uh, love all the support, that's for sure. And hearing stories, reconnecting with people that haven't seen, you know, for a year, possibly even longer, um, it's pretty cool to uh, be able to share that experience with everybody. Uh, I, I forgot to mention that our guest this week is going to be Travis Frank from Trophy Encounters Guide Service, and he's guiding out of Minnesota. We will uh, we'll touch on a variety of topics, kind of talk about the state of the uh, Minnesota muskie fisheries. You know, he's involved in the uh, Citizens Advisory Committee, so we kind of go down that road a little bit. And then uh, hopefully you can take some out of that. But then we also, obviously, we have to try to give you a little bit of knowledge to help put more fish in the boat. So we kind of go down that for uh, a little bit as well. Um, if you're looking for gear for your next musky fishing adventures, check out teamrhinooutdoors.com. I know that we have gotten lots of products in over the past couple weeks. You know, one of the newer ones is the adjustable weight system from Suic. So if you're looking for a nine inch high with adjustable weights, it's new for this year. That would be one that, uh, that we have in. I mean, other top products for this season so far has been the mini grenade from Musky Mayhem Tackle, the shallow diesel from Musky Train, and the six-inch fatty minnow from Slammer Tackle. Those have all been very popular. So if you're looking for gear, check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com, and then you can also check out uh, MuskyMayhemTackle.com. Uh, definitely uh, find any of your blade-style baits by going right there. That's it, Brad. That's all you got to add to that one? <laughs> well, I can say that uh, 
we just finished. Uh, I'm, I'm going to speak. I'm speaking like five days early, but we're just finishing up the last part of Mayhem's 10,000 cast. The last episode just came out when this airs about four or five days beforehand. So anyway, I'd like to thank everybody for uh, supporting us with that TV show as well. And uh, we already got one in the can and I am going to start fishing here relatively soon. So we're going to get back out there and start making some more uh, TV shows for next year. I am going to not start fishing that soon. I am going to take a vacation, Brad, though. We're going to South Carolina here in, uh, I don't know, end of beginning of April. Kids have awesome. off for spring break, so we're going to call her a week. And so if you're looking to, if you need stuff in April, it's best to get your uh, your orders in as quickly as possible so we can get them out to you. We're only going to be gone for, I don't know, like five days, but shipping will definitely be delayed during that time so that we can... Uh, we can go down to South Carolina, have, um, you know, my brother-in-law lives down there. He had a kid recently, and so we're going to go down and, you know, see the new addition to the family, and I guess, I don't know, probably hang out on a beach for a couple of days, maybe fish. I don't know. We'll see what happens, but that's definitely uh, something to look forward to for us. Unfortunately, like I said, we will be out of the shop for a little bit, but shipping will resume shortly after that. Well, good for you, Jeff. That's awesome. Well, I'd, I'd almost think I'd rather be musky fishing at some point here. I'm definitely looking forward to doing that again. And it won't be long. I mean, Brad, we're, let's see, this one's going to come out. It'll almost be the end of March, and we're going to be rolling. I mean, things are going to be, we're going to be at the season before you know it. At least in, in southern Wisconsin. Unfortunately, you Minnesota folk, you have to wait a little bit longer. But at least the southern Wisconsin guys, they can kick it off here in, uh, I don't know, it's always the first weekend in May. So I don't know if that happens to be early May, but it's not later than the 7th probably. Yeah, I can honestly say I, I woke up at five this morning and started plowing snow uh, before we did this podcast. Uh, it doesn't feel like fishing seasons right around the corner for us here in Minnesota right now with all the snow that we keep getting. But uh, the forecast looks good. So if you look at the 10 day, uh, things are going to start melting here shortly, I think. Yeah, I would agree. Unfortunately for you guys, you get snow after snow after snow. It hasn't been too bad for us except for... You know, when we came over to Minnesota, of course, you know, with the Minnesota Expo, you had to have some sort of weather. Wouldn't be Minnesota if we didn't. But, uh, you know, it'll be quick. It'll be short. You know, we'll be it'll, we'll be fishing before you know, Brad. All, this time of year always zips by. Well, maybe what we got to do, Jeff, is maybe we got to get you on one of the episodes next year. So maybe you should jump in the truck and uh, head south with me at some point in the next month and a half. Possibility. We'll see what happens. I got to catch up, Brad. First, uh, first things first, unload the trailer. It's been, uh, you know, a long time coming now. We got to get that rolling. I want to recount the inventory in the shop. Lots of projects to take care of before, you know, fishing season. It's been on my list of things to do. I always have this list, and I want to be caught up with the list before the season starts. And I don't know, I think I've gone on six years straight, and I haven't caught up with that list. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I was going to say, good luck with that, Jeff. That's the way it always works. And uh, it's good you get a list, though. That keeps you on track. Right. All right. Well, Brad, I got, speaking of lists and things to do, I do have things to do today. So let's uh, wrap up our intro here and let's get uh, Travis Frank on the phone. All right. Our guest this week is Travis Frank with Trophy Encounters Guide Service and Travis Guides, I would say mainly out of the Minnesota metro area. Travis, we want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come out and talk musky fishing with us. How are things going with you today? Oh, I love any opportunity to talk fishing and especially musky. So appreciate you guys having me on the show today. 
So Travis, we've never had you on the podcast before. You might not necessarily be a household name to, uh, you know, listeners of our podcast. Why don't you kind of go around, you know, the background, what got you started into musky fishing and then, you know, what part you're playing in the uh, fishing industry today? Yeah. So I didn't watch cartoons when I was a kid. I watched fishing shows and I fished every possible second that I could. And I remember watching, I don't know if it was the Limners or a different show. Maybe it was Bob Mason. I'm not sure. But I remember watching a walk the dog lure on the surface, musky following behind it, and then exploding and attacking. And I'm like, I want that. I want that really bad. And I was not, uh, I didn't grow up in an area that had a lot of muskies. But at the time I grew up, Minnesota started the muskie stocking program in the mid eighties. And then by the late nineties, right around 2000, it was, it was really going strong. And that's when I was in high school, I figured out with a buddy how to catch muskies after trying and trying and trying. I stumbled on a pattern that was unbelievable and there were muskies everywhere. There were not any muskie fishermen. Uh, this was on Lake Minnetonka specifically, and I became addicted. And I know people listening share that addiction, so they get it. But um, I started guiding because, you know, back then we had those disposable cameras, I think you remember. And my dad would take the disposable camera into work and have them developed. And he was showing some coworkers. And one of the coworkers is like, would, if I pay him, would he take me out? Cause we were catching, you know, four or five, six muskies every day. And, you know, just, it was awesome fishing. And so my first, um, my first guide trip was in high school for muskies. It became my summer job full time by the time I was in college. And after college, I guided muskies pretty much full time and walleye and bass too. But muskies were definitely my specialty because our fishery in Minnesota was at its peak. I mean, the whole musky stocking boom, for, uh, you know, the success of it really peaked in the early 2000s. And that's when I was guiding full time. People from all over the country would come out because Minnetonka, Malax, other metro waters were just unbelievable. And so I'm really fortunate to be able to say that I was in on that heyday back then. I took out Ron Shera a television uh, producer and host in Minnesota here. Took him out musky fishing because he also has the same passion for it. And we hit it off. And shortly after, I ended up taking a job working with him uh, for his production company, Ron Share Productions. And today, now I've been there for, gosh, I think 15 years now. And I, you know, I produce outdoor television today. Very fortunate to be able to do so. Um, because I still have the same passions. I don't guide for muskies nearly as much as I used to, but um, I still have the love for them, and I still enjoy taking people out there to catch them, and I still enjoy trying to help other people catch them. So that's that's pretty much my story. Uh, you asked, like, what else am I doing in the fishing industry? It just uh, this year, I recently started working with the Minnesota DNR on the Citizen Advisory Committee for Muskie and Northern Pike. Um, you know, they, a couple of years ago, started this where they had, you know, stakeholders in Minnesota that were concerned 
about the fishery and wanted to have input into it, uh, working directly with the DNR. So, you know, I have insight into the the entire fishery with the DNR, um, but certainly as it pertains to muskies, that's kind of the, the core of what we're working on now. I know that Brad wants to jump into the uh, Citizen Advisory Committee, but for you know our listeners, what would be some TV shows from Sheriff Productions that you're involved in? Yeah, so Do North Outdoors, it's a variety outdoor, hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, anything to do with the outdoors. That airs on uh, what was Fox Sports, now it's Valley Sports, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, both Dakotas and Iowa, and into Ontario as well. And then Minnesota Bound is a local TV show. That's the one that started it all for a company. And that one airs on NBC networks across Minnesota. And then I also host two hunting TV shows. Uh, the Flush is an upland bird hunting TV show, and that airs on the Outdoor Channel. And then Rooster Tales as well. Um, that one airs on Valley Sports. And those are upland bird hunting specific TV shows. We also have an ATV travel show, uh, a TV show basically explaining how outdoor gear is made. It's called Made for the Outdoors. And then Ron still hosts Backroads with Ron and Raven. So we we have a lot of production going on. And then, you know, in the podcast world, I host a couple of podcasts too. So I don't I don't uh, have a lot of free time during the days anymore because we have so much going on. But it's all something that I'm really passionate about and I feel really fortunate. I think, you know, for me, the biggest thing is the people that I met and the places that I've been. I mean, that's something that, um, I'll always cherish for this, this role in outdoor television. It's, it's taken me to some amazing places. Absolutely. So our listeners obviously are into fishing podcasts. Are any of the podcasts that you're involved with about fishing? I would assume. Yes. Yeah. Do North Outdoors. Um, Natalie Dillon, uh, Natty up North for people that are on social media. Uh, she's my co-host on that TV show. And we started a podcast, do North Outdoors podcast about, oh gosh, eight, nine months ago, something like that. Um, you know, and we talk, we talk a lot of outdoor topics. My guest that I just had on, uh, the show for this week is a DNR fisheries manager. And, uh, we talked about winter kill and that's something that's happening across a lot of lakes in the Midwest right now because of this extreme winter. And what does winter kill mean? Why is it a blessing to some lakes? That's just an example of a show that we've touched on. I guess before that is the spear fisherman. Um, that travels the world and he had some pretty wild stories as well. So fishing is at our core and we both, Natalie and I love to fish. So we have at least, I would say 50% of our topics dig into fishing world. Well, there was a time, Travis. Um, we actually did a little film production ourselves together. Yeah. To Legends of Rod and Reel. I love that <laughs> show. That was a cool show. How many years ago was that Travis? I was trying to remember. I would guess, Brad, that it was 10 years ago, maybe yeah. 11, something like that. We produced a show for the Outdoor Channel called Legends of Rod and Reel. And two of the shows that I worked on, one was with Joe Booker in Wisconsin, obviously. And then um, I got to come up and, and film with Brad and tell his story and the cowgirl story, too. And that was obviously special because... Anytime I have a chance to do anything musky related, I, I always jump at it, but also just getting to meet Brad and, and telling your story was, was pretty cool. Uh, it was a good time and it, it turned out really cool. I, I enjoyed doing it. That's for sure. 
So, I mean, what percentage would you say, like, any of your production is towards musky, Travis? Um, there's, a, there's kind of like this sexy appeal to the fish. Um, we don't do, like, hardcore fishing at this time. I've been talking about adding just a strict fishing show to our, to our list of TV shows. It hasn't happened yet. If it does, I'm pretty sure just because of my natural love for the muskie and, and I like the intensity and excitement that comes with it, that I would include a lot of muskie content in it. But at this time, we don't do strictly fishing uh, content. It's, it's a variety of different adventures. I have done quite a few muskie adventures, though. Anything from small rivers in northern Minnesota to up in Canada, Lake of the Woods taking people out in the metro here i you know i i can't really count how many i just know that whenever i have the chance i try to include them in there because i don't know there's just something about that fish that anybody that's listening obviously knows what it is i mean there's just that like unexplainable passion for it you know and like just everything about it but when you have the opportunity to put a, a you know, a bluegill or a crappie on TV or a 48 inch muskie exploding on a top water, like what, which one do you think is going to have a better draw? I, I always lean towards the big explosion. So I, I like a lot of muskie content when I can get it. Yeah. It makes total sense. I, I think most muskie anglers and our listeners would definitely agree with all of that. But, you know, it's a challenge, like, doing the production side of things. I mean, you guys are all over the planet. It's pretty amazing what, what uh, Ron Sherry has done. And then the group around you with Bill Sherrick and yourself and even Ron's daughter. And now it sounds like Natty up north is joining the force, too. I guess I kind of knew that, but I wasn't 100% sure how that all fit together. Yeah, she's been my co-host on Do North now for about a year, a little over a year, I think. And obviously, she has a love for muskies, too. Uh, we had uh, a couple of our first shows, like every time she's trying to line something up, it's usually muskie related because that's her, she likes bass, but if she's being honest, she'd rather go for muskie too. So a lot of her content that she's pitching for story ideas is around muskies as well. So between the two of us, we, we do a lot of it. And yeah, you mentioned just, you know, the, the places that Ron has been and Bill, and, and I just feel really fortunate to be a part of the team. And I, Honestly, I mean, it goes back to a muskie. Everything that I, you know, I was just thinking about it this morning, actually, because I, I met a friend of mine who introduced me to Ron, and I was talking to him just yesterday and put it together. I'm like, if it wasn't for him introducing me to Ron and me taking Ron out muskie fishing and then us sitting it off, I probably wouldn't be doing this job that I've been doing for 15 years. And I probably wouldn't, you know, have met, the hundreds of people and been to a lot of these amazing places to share the stories. And so I'm grateful for the fish and the journey that it's taken me on. Yeah, that's super cool. A question that we've asked periodically throughout the years that we've done this podcast is if somebody is interested in getting into the outdoor world, making it their career, do you have any advice for somebody like that? Yeah, definitely. I get a lot of people that reach out. They sometimes will reach out directly and ask for advice and, and I'll, if they're local and they want to come in, I'll give them a tour of our place and we'll sit down and talk. And I think the biggest thing that I can explain to people is that in this world of social media, everybody wa that wants to make it in the outdoor world 
there, there's no perfect, this is the A, B, C, D, E. Like this is not, there's no perfect step to get into it. A lot of it is how you, how you uh, communicate with other people, who you end up meeting. And the, the, real, the real truth to it is if you want to be noticed, and have people that follow you on social media, you have to be genuine and true because there's so many people that want to be what somebody else has already created. And then they try to be that person on social media. And every, I think most people see through that. And so a lot of times you can create a brand in social media and explain to a company how you can bring value to them. I mean, there's, there's just so many ways to get into the, into the outdoor space but there's not one in particular that I've been able to say, like, if you do A, B, C, and D, you're going to have a job in the outdoor world. It's right place, right time, working hard and being really true and genuine. And I think the one that strikes home with me, as you said, working hard. I mean, it, <laughs> I don't care what it is you do. And we, we say this all the time, but, you know, ultimately, if you have a direction, you know, put that flag in the ground and just keep charging towards it. And, you'll eventually make it, but, uh, that comes with tons of time and tons of hard work. That's for sure. Oh, for sure. Brad, like all those hours you and Carrie poured into your business and you're out there guiding on top of it. I mean, that really resonated with me when I went and saw what you guys are doing, because when I, when I started my guide service, I mean, I was doing a musky trip in the morning. I would sleep in the middle of the day. I would do a night trip and I'd get up and do it again. And I would, my sleep schedule was so messed up because, you know, if the fish are biting from 10 PM till midnight and then they start up again at four, you know, you've got to have your boat, all your gear ready to go for the next clients. And I mean, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I was on like day 54 in a row and, and a lot of them were doubles. And I'm thinking like, Holy crap, is this what I really want to do? But the hard work opened up doors and eventually, you know, like I, I was in a position to take Ron out fishing and it led to what it is today, which I could never have predicted. But I, I always tell people, you just got to work hard, you work hard, stay true to yourself and good things will happen. I think the, the funny part is maybe the difference is you're smarter than me. You said you actually slept. Um, <laughs> there was a, a few years there where I don't know if I slept much other than the winter. Maybe, uh, maybe that's why I look like a grizzly bear. I was hibernating in the winter, staying awake all summer. Yeah. They, were, they reached a point, actually, and this was about 10 years into my obsession with muskies and guiding and taking people out. And I looked at a friend one time and, and I was burnt out and he goes, well, yeah, you've been chasing the same damn fish for 10 years. I was like, huh? Yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> maybe you're right. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't need to be as bad at him anymore. I don't know. <laughs> well, there's a lot of truth to that, you know, and, and that can go back to the success of team Rhino outdoors. I know Jeff, I know his passions and, and uh, the drive that he puts in and the work, uh, it's amazing. So I don't care what it is, man. Anything that you want to be successful in, you'll find a way if you just keep pounding forward. There's no real yeah. key ingredient other than that. Treat people fairly, work hard, and be true to yourself. And if you can build a product or a service that you believe in, other people will believe in it too. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, your involvement with the DNR. I find it really interesting. 
I guess I always knew about it, but uh, I don't know all the details on how that actually, you know, how accomplishments uh, get, get taken care of and uh, the direction that uh, the citizens are involved in. Yeah, it's really complicated. I'm still learning a lot about it. So I just recently began working with them. I've kind of been connected with a lot of different moving parts in the CNR. And, you know, like there's been bills that were presented in the Minnesota legislature that I've gone to the Capitol to speak on or against before um, because I, I care about the fish and the resources and I care about accurate information. And I think a lot of times anglers by our own fault, we end up not being a loud enough voice in places like the Capitol because we go to the lake to get away from all of the political crap and the news. We don't want to be a part of it. But the reality is if we're not, then people that are making decisions about the things we care about are doing so without the right information. So I have gone down to the Capitol before. And so I've, you know, met others working on behalf against muskies, you name it. And it's quite interesting. It's also quite disturbing to see the reality of the things that happen down there. And I guess this is a call for people to, you know, when, when we get those, Hey, your voice needs to be heard. And the muskie community um, goes nuts and sends emails to every legislator. That stuff is important and it's worked and it matters and keep doing it because they hear it. They get flooded. I've seen it when I've been down there. Legislators have told me they're like, Holy crap. My inbox filled up. They care about this. That's that's a good deal. So we need to keep doing that. But I've learned the political side is really ugly. And that's sometimes I'm like, gosh, this is just a fish. You know, like imagine the important things in this world, like healthcare and all these other things that we need to come to an agreement on. But anyway, um, my journey into the citizen group has been a weird one because of the different relationships that I've made. And then I was asked if I would join it because um, the passion that I've shown towards this fish in these different areas. And right now, um, the DNR is in the midst of putting together a long-range plan for muskies. So I think what we're looking at is about 12 years on that. So it takes us out to roughly 2035 in this planning stage. And so the DNR with their biologists and with anybody in fisheries that um, has a stake in different species, they put together this plan based on things that are important, that we feel are important, and we can, in, we can include input. And this plan is taking time. And this is one thing that I've really learned in my short time there already is that anything that the state is trying to do in fisheries, doesn't matter if it's musky, walleye, panfish, takes time. And so that's why the long range plan goes so long because some of the things that we want to achieve might take 10 years to get there. It's up to you guys if you want to dig into specifics on things. Just let me know and I can fill you in with what I know. Yeah, I think uh, the interesting part is, is there a breakdown to short-term projects versus the long-term like you're talking? Well, yes and no. Um, in order to achieve the long-term success, things have to start happening, like improving musky rearing ponds and the number of fish that can be achieved. 
And of course that takes money. So they have to figure out where do they spend the money? You know, everyone's like, just put, put a hundred thousand muskies in Mille Lacs and let's get it over with. Well, it doesn't necessarily work that way because what you take from one thing you, you, or what you put into one, you take from another because it's a limited resource. And then, you know, it's like, well, why don't we have muskie stocking ponds in places that don't freeze out? So we don't have to risk losing year classes. Well, you can't transport fish from another state now because of AIS. So there's all kinds of these um, factors. And I, and I apologize if I botch any information here, I'm trying to generalize, I guess. Um, but right now, I think one of the keys, one of the first initial things that a lot of people feel is important, myself included, is to relieve some of the stress on the lakes in our state. We need to bring some of the big musky lakes back like Mille Lacs. Mille Lacs is at the top of the list that was just a mecca if anybody experienced fishing on Mille Lacs in the 90s and early 2000s they get it they know what, it, what the potential is if they fished it recently they also know that it's not even a fraction of what it once was first and foremost I mean getting Mille Lacs back getting those big musky lakes back that can really take the pressure off of the smaller fisheries to get there, though, uh, it's it's really, that's kind of the question. A lot of people say, just make more muskies and put them in, but it, it's been proven by the DNR that it's not as simple as that uh, because the infrastructure needs to be built to build more or to grow more muskies, and that's, that's something that they're working on. Cause, I don't know, does that answer the question? Yeah, it does, Travis. I, you know, it's interesting to me. I mean, how did we get here? Do you know any of the background? I mean, I know, like myself, I battled no more muskies, not just myself. Uh, muskies Inc. helped and, and many, many people across the board. But when no more muskies started on Lake Meltona, it was uh, it's in my backyard, right? And so yeah, I, I dealt with it at every stinking level. And unfortunately, you know, city council type stuff. Um, town meetings uh all the way to the state capitol i mean it, it was bizarre and then it moved and it moved up to pelican and you know it's been a crazy crazy ride fortunately it seems like it's a little bit quiet right now and uh, we haven't heard about it much in the last couple of years but you know how did we get there in this state i mean it, honestly i think it starts with some education as well yeah it's it's a very what you mentioned is a very big point because in the la in the previous long range plan the DNR was hoping to increase stocking and introduce muskies into more lakes in Minnesota. What you just mentioned, no more muskies, that was a big hindrance to being able to do that. The pushback, the fight at the Capitol on behalf and against muskies was pretty um pretty challenging for the for the fisheries department to overcome. I, I know you fought against it, Brad. I fought against it. That's one of the things at the Capitol that I was fighting against to, to help people understand that this is not a fish that just goes and eats children and dogs and ducks and, and you can't swim in the lake. They're taking over. But the reality was a few loud, powerful people in your area put up a big enough fight and had the right people in their court to fight back against it. And that's when I say... You know, I'm sitting down at the Capitol listening to our DNR fisheries chief explain 
how the entire ecosystem works, how this fish is stocked at a rate that doesn't change, you know, your walleyes and everything else. And the people are not listening. They're, the the people that we have put into office were not listening, that were voted in, uh, you know, to represent us, were not listening to the factual information. They would say things like, well, you know, I... I used to be able to go out on my lake and, and I could fill up my pail of crappies anytime I wanted. And now there's 50 houses out there. And when I go out, we can't catch them. And I'm like, how do you not put that together? It's the people take it. I'm not, you know, then they say, I don't think putting muskies in the lake is a good idea because we already struggle to catch crappies. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, these are the people making the decisions. You know, it's maddening. But the, the reason that it's been quiet lately Brad, that you mentioned we haven't heard much about lately is because there hasn't been a push to stock more fish in new lakes. The DNR has said, all right, we tried to do that and look at the pushback that we've gotten. The the reality is that there has been a roughly 80% support to stock muskies in all of the lakes that have been proposed in every one of them, including the ones that got the pushback up by Milton and Pelican. It's just the loudness of a couple of people that push back against it. And from what I've heard, and I can't say this for certain, a couple of those loud voices might not be living on those lakes anymore, which could mean that future attempts might not receive the same pushback. And some of the people in the legislature might not be there. So if that comes around again, there may be some success there uh, to get them in new waters because overwhelmingly there's been massive support to, to stock more muskies in the lake and create more opportunities. I think anybody who fishes muskies in Minnesota, probably Wisconsin or other places has seen just this explosion of uh, anglers out there targeting the fish. And they say, we need to relieve this. We need to put them in more places. Um, the one thing that we've talked about a little bit at, at the latest meeting was this is, this is partly our fault, musky anglers fault um, in the, the way that we perceive this fish uh, as this monster of the lakes that, you know, like, I mean, you can look at some advertisements and there's a dog hanging off a trouble hook. You, you've probably seen that advertisement, right? You know, so some of the, the reasons that people are pushing back and are fearful of the fish are created by musky anglers and the way that we show them as this all powerful fish down there. And so it's, it's important for people to understand the, the truth of the fish and how they're stocked in the lakes and the fact that a healthy ecosystem does have dominant predators and they're not eating all the walleyes, all the studies, are showing that we've known that as musky anglers that a walleye is not a muskie's favorite food, but a walleye angler doesn't always see it that way because they see a struggling walleye in the end of their line and a muskie finds that as an opportunistic meal comes up. Now they have this both side story of a muskie grabbing their walleyes that spreads through. It's a lot of misinformation. And so how do we change the perception of this fish into being this awesome fish that draws more people to the lakes that we can experience and enjoy together. And, Oh, it's not this terrible thing, destroying lakes because all the facts say it doesn't do anything to hurt it. In fact, it probably helps it. 
So that's the challenge that the state is up against as well. And something that I don't, I don't know, maybe you guys have an answer to that or a solution. I don't know the true answer. The one thing that comes to mind right away is the way that I battled a lot of this um, in my neck of the woods anyway, was to put the, um, the biologist kind of on the spot where they had to talk facts and I, you said facts. And I think that's a huge part of this, right? Um, when you have somebody that's going to talk facts, a lot of the support that the anti musky crowd has, they hear the real facts and they, they soon realize, you know, you were saying some people just can't figure out how that looks. But at the end of the day, when they start hearing facts, it changes the whole thought process, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't know. It's a, it's a challenge. There's no question about it. I, I have to thank you for putting the time and effort in that you are, because I mean, that's, that's how it starts, right? Well, I think, yeah, I think all of us do share a little bit of responsibility. If we have the opportunity to educate people, most of the time when these conversations come up in a general, I'll take the, uh, there's a marina on the lake that in the town that I live and I fish out there a lot. And there's a lot of, uh, wise old gentlemen that sit down belly up to the bar in the marina and drink coffee. And when the opportunity comes up and they bring up muskies and they talk about it as this fish that's, you know, Oh, they're everywhere. And then I explain how they benefit the, the lake and what they're actually eating. And I give them their, this information. I the number one food source out there is uh, sheephead. Did you know that? And they're like, really? Like, yeah, that's their favorite food out there. That's why when the DNR stocked them, they thought this would have a state record in it because the sheep head or an oily fish kind of like a tulipy, you know? And so you give them this information and now their, their rumors turn into knowledge and they continue it. And so I feel like it's sort of my duty to, to continue to provide information and knowledge, but in the general fishing circles, when people are throwing out all this stuff and I'm like, no, that's actually, did you know this, this, and this? And then they, they're like, Oh, Oh, okay. So I think musky anglers, you know, anybody listening, they've probably been in these circles where they've heard people trashing muskies. And so you can either, you can either avoid the conversation or you can go into it and, and provide information that gives them a reason to think about it. And the next time they might actually come back and back up the fish. And I say, guys, if you want a healthy fishery, you got to have a balanced fishery and that includes a top predator because that's the way it was before you got here and before we all started destroying, not destroying, but changing the entire ecosystem and the balance. So they start thinking of it that way. And they're like, and I say, do you want bigger panfish? They're like, Oh yeah. Well then you need to have a, a large predator in there. Maybe it's Northern Pike. Maybe it's muskies. You've got an option. Think about it, you know? So it gets people thinking anyway. Absolutely, Travis. I mean, if you think about it, the best walleye fisheries we have in the state of Minnesota have muskies on. And uh, when you say that to some people, they look at you sideways, right? Well, I like fishing here for walleyes. Yeah. And guess what? There's there's a, a correlation. There's muskies in that body of water and they just look at you like, really? So I, it is about those little conversations. It definitely can make a huge difference. Yeah, and they, the the one that comes back all the time is, oh, I had a walleye on and a muskie came up and grabbed it, or I had a bass on and a muskie came up and grabbed it and say, yeah, that's that happens. You know, they're 
they're an opportunistic fish. They feed up, they see up. So if something is struggling on the surface, they're going to go up and, and grab it. But it's not their number one food choice, and nor do they target that fish out unless it's struggling on the surface. So it helps them kind of understand a little bit more about the fish and why it attacked it. I find it interesting, you know, th- that topic, this hot topic is more so heard about Minnesota. I don't, Jeff, do you ever hear about it in Wisconsin? I know that uh, there's a lot of bass anglers with uh, Chase Gibson down in West Virginia. He hears it about the bass anglers or there's too many muskies, blah, blah, blah. But nowhere else do I really hear the noise in any other states that, that have muskies. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, Brad, I would say that I agree with you. I mean, it seems like, you know, it, we kind of talk about, we do have some issues, I would say, in our state, but for the most part, there's I don't hear of any groups that are like, you know, no more muskies, that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, homeowner or uh, lake associations that don't want us in there, but, you know, I think it's more about boating traffic than it is about, you know, the muskie itself. So it's kind of weird how, how the, you know, we're one state apart, but there's, you know, varying differences. It's kind of like I, at the Minnesota show. You know, this had nothing to do with musky fishing, but it's more about hockey. You know, like hockey is so big in Minnesota, but we have this exa- almost exact same climate over here. And nobody, I wouldn't say nobody, but it's not nearly the the spectacle that it is in, in Minnesota. So I don't know. It's just a little bit different how the two states are, even though we're so close. Do you think some of that is because a lot of your, and just speaking about muskies, because a lot of your fish are natural over there. They've been there since before people started fishing and are still in their lakes today? I, I would agree, think that's probably part of it. You know, we do have, like you said, a lot of natural fish, a lot of natural lakes that have had them forever, and they, people have just kind of, I guess, adapted to it. You know, it's not like a, a new species. There's not that concern about what it's going to do to, you know, to your fishery or whatever, you know, whether you're fishing for crappies or walleyes or whatever. So, yeah, I definitely think there's truth to that. I find it interesting, you know, when I was battling with no more muskies and John Davis was on Lake Miltona, I would go to the Lake Association meetings and I went back to the uh, historical society here in Alexandria and literally have maps where Lake Miltona in 1932 was advertised as a muskie lake. And honestly, I could not find anything or any details about walleyes being in there. It was bass and muskies. (laughs) So, you know, if you really want to start digging into it, I mean, Minnesota has some of those natural fisheries as well, obviously. I mean, with Cass and Leach and the Mississippi, and I mean, you could go on and on and on, right? So Mm -hmm. I I don't think that, uh, I think some of that was lost, obviously, but I, I don't know. You know, the one thing that I always think about, too, is the state fish for Minnesota is the walleye, and you look at Wisconsin, and the state fish is the muskie. So... You know, is it something there? But again, I think it all goes back to the educational piece, and I think we can win this battle. Yeah, it's it's interesting because a lot of the musky lakes in Minnesota that are, are that are stocked also have stocked walleyes that are not natural in those lakes, and so I don't. It, it's it's just a fear of the unknown of the fish because if it were a fear of an invasive fish in a new lake, then they couldn't say let's put walleyes in there either but i i think we could probably talk about this all day long and i think the reality is we've got a perception and a lot of unknowns about a fish and so we're looking at ways to try to bring awareness to the value of having muskies and you know like for example 
I talked to the governor the other day and he's like, I really want to catch a muskie. Do you think you can make it happen? I'm like, well, I think I can make that happen. But the way to do it or what we'd like to see, or I think what your government or your uh, DNR fisheries body as a whole would like to see is you, a powerful voice in the state, explaining to the citizens that this is a great fish and here's why and changing, helping to change a perception amongst people. I don't know that it's going to change everyone's mind. There's going to be a couple of people that are going to put up a sink because they just stand firm in what they believe, even though it might, even though it might not be accurate. But I think as a whole, we can hopefully start to move the needle a little bit anyway on the value of having the fish and what it does to our state and our economy and the, you know, the resource and the ecosystem as a whole, nothing but good has really been shown to come from it. And people need to see that. And hopefully they start to see that. And then in the long range plan, getting back to it now in a long winded way, over time we'll create more fisheries, more lakes that have muskies, hopefully that people can then go to and Spread out the pressure and just create better fishing. A lot of the states in, in America are copying Minnesota's stocking plan. And even the, the, the musky strain that we have, you know, the Leech Lake strain is, is extremely well sought after amongst other states. And so we built this amazing resource. And not saying it's completely crashed, but anybody that's fished muskies for more than 20 years, knows that it's not what it was 20 years ago. Agreed, Travis. I, I get to ask that question quite often. Um, it's definitely more challenging than it was, uh, say, even 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But uh, we still have a, a good, solid fishery, that's for sure. Um, I'm a little jealous. You know, I'm getting up there. I'm 53. We will be 53 here in about a month. And uh, to think that this plan goes out 12 years before we can really start practicing it. Um, I don't know. Am I going to be able to enjoy some of that fishing? But uh, it's definitely about the future as well. And all I can say is thank you for uh, being involved the way you are. Well, that's actually interesting. I've mentioned this topic to somebody else, and they're like, so you think I'll have one more of those heydays in my lifetime? And I started thinking about it. I'm like, well, all right. So the, the initial boom happened around 2000 in Minnesota. 2005 might have been the peak. The stocking program really kicked off in the mid-80s in Minnesota. And an average lifespan of a muskie is, you know, 20, 25 years. So, yeah, I mean, when you when you put a new fish in a system, that's when they don't have the competition. The initial introduction is the best it'll ever be in that lake. Um, but it takes that time to get there. So, yeah, I mean, if, if a bunch of fish get put into a lake tomorrow, 10 years before you're going to really see that year class and then the following year class and the following year class um, reach the, the point that you're starting to reap the rewards. And if it takes 10 years for us to add more, then you got to keep pushing it out a little bit. So, yeah, Brad, I'm, I'm with you. I, I hope that the state as a whole, and I am not taking credit for anything other than 
I just care about the fish and I care about factual information and trying to help. Um, so I do invest some time into it, but it's, it's a huge body of people. Uh, there's a lot of factors at play and money is a big deal. Politics are part of it. Uh, resources of a winter like we're having right now can change the plans by a year or two. There's just so much that goes into it that, uh, it's not as simple as here, let's just put 10,000 fish in this lake and call it good. It just, it doesn't work that way. And that's the struggle that I've come to realize. And I have to say, okay, all right, I'll calm down now <laughs> because I want to just press a button and put them in there. And I can't. Yeah, I get it. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, part of this whole equation is, is dollars, correct? And I yeah. believe, I really truly believe the people in Minnesota, the, the true musky, passionate anglers, probably outside of Minnesota as well, would probably donate some money to try to make some of those things happen. Um, is that even a consideration or is the DNR not looking for that? Or how does that process work? And if it, and if you don't know, Travis, I mean, I know you're relatively new to this particular thing, but, um, you know, I, I definitely think that we could round up some dollars if that's what it is. So I asked the same question. Are you thinking like a musky stamp? voluntary musky stamp well you could do a musky stamp i honestly think you know if you went to the minnesota musky show and you had a jar set in there that jar would get full awfully quick just for you know stocking mm -hmm. dollars or you know maybe it's a stock pond that needs to be built um those dollars would be generated very quickly throughout the musky yeah. community yes that would be great i think that i I've, i asked the same question i was like well I think musky anglers care so much about this fish that we would voluntarily pay more. Like I would, I would buy a musky, you know, everybody that musky fishes, when you buy a license, would you like to buy a musky 20 bucks or whatever it would be, you know? Yes, let's do that. And, but then the pushback was that by, by doing something like a musky stamp, okay. They said that that could actually hurt our cause because the muskies gets allocated X amount of dollars. Walleye get X amount of dollars. Bass, northern, all these species get allocated X amount of dollars. If the legislature sees, oh, they've got a muskie stamp. They're good. They're paying for their own fish. We can now take these dollars and put them to walleye or shoreline habitat hat or you know whatever you name a cause that they want to do now they the musky fishery risks losing the dollars that are already being allocated to that fish because somebody in the legislature might see that as saying they've already got their own money we don't need to put any into it the reality is we do need to put money into it and we actually probably need to put more to help build up the hatcheries and the the rearing ponds and things like that, because that's become, I think a pretty big issue. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around what those stocking ponds and putting larger fish, you know? So how do you get a muskie into a lake to reach 40 inches? Well, when you put them in there and it's six inches long, the chances of it reaching 40 aren't as good as if you put a 20 inch fish in there. So like, okay, it, takes a couple of years for that fish to reach that size. Where do we store that fish and grow that fish? And how much money goes into growing larger muskies to then stock more successfully? Um, you know, so 
the infrastructure needs to be built up. Getting back to the muskie anglers, they they said to me, because I brought that up at the meeting, they're like, their biggest thing is be involved in muskies Inc. In your local chapter, uh, they can do a lot for the resource. Each chapter can really step up and, and go above and beyond in ways working with the DNR um, to go above and beyond what uh, the state allocates for that specific fish, our favorite fish. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, you know, it's a challenging thing because the politics side of things, right? And mm-hmm. it, it just seems so crazy. I mean, I think beyond a lot of that side, <laughs> I just, I, I can see people literally volunteering time potentially land to create some of these rearing ponds and so on and so forth. Cause I've heard a lot of undertow throughout the years where guys have tried to make that difference, but at the end of the day, it just doesn't seem like anything ever comes about. And so it's challenging. It's mentally challenging for me to think that uh, we can't get to that next step. Yeah. It, it really sometimes comes down to a person grabbing the bull by the horn and doing it. Like that's, that's the reality. And then other people can get behind it. Um, you know, like there's so many people that want to do things, but they wonder, how do I do it? Where do I go? How do I uh, put money? Where is that money going? And if somebody's not doing it, then it doesn't really get off the ground. So I think that's a challenge in way more than just the muskie fishing world. I mean, in a lot of fisheries and just in life, somebody has to step up and, and do it. Um, and right now in the state of Minnesota, the DNR has a team working on all different fisheries, but they're trying to really bring back Minnesota's muskie program in the state and bring back the fisheries. Cause we know the potential, we know how good it can be. Um, it sucks that it's not still like that today, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I wish it was a X, Y, and Z. We do all these and we're back, you know, but it's proven more challenging than I thought it would be. Definitely understand what you're talking about. I, I truly appreciate your time and the other people that are involved in that. That's truly incredible that, uh, that you're already going that direction. So that's a good thing, Travis. Um, well, there's, a, there's, I, I haven't done much, so I appreciate that. But I, I, there are some people that have been hard at, work fighting, you know, like Aaron Meyer, for example. I mean, he's been fighting for muskies for decades already, you know, and people like Aaron that have been stepping up for years and doing these meetings and fighting against bad bills and all that stuff. Like I just barely scratch the surface. We have some real heroes that love muskies that have been fighting for them for decades. And if it weren't for them, man, we could be in a really bad spot. No, absolutely. By no means do I mean to discredit anybody that's already put in those time, that mm-hmm. time. And, uh, I mean, without some of the original muskies Inc groups, uh, that started, <laughs> we wouldn't have muskies in the state. We wouldn't have seen the first boom. Right. I mean, right. definitely yeah. this has been around for a long time and, uh, by no means am I discrediting anyone that's given time and, and put an effort into this. Yeah, I, I just thought I would give them the, the proper credit. That's that's all I was saying. I, I know what you mean, Brad. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, let's uh, let's shift gears here, and uh, we're going to put Jeff on the spot. He never gets put on the spot on this podcast, so we're going to have him throw a question at you. All right, so Travis, I didn't. We didn't prep for this, and I didn't even think about it. But you know, we we've, we've gone into this podcast for a little while, and I was thinking, you know, you spend a lot of time on the water, and if you could describe, I'd say you're like ultimate musky day you know water temperature weather wind conditions you know what color water lake are we fishing on what bait are we using why don't you why don't you describe that we've never asked that question before on this podcast really okay well i would uh, i would go with august 28th and it's been hot for a month and a half and we have the first nasty cold front of the year it's 55 degrees or 60 degrees. There's no sunshine, 20 mile an hour winds, light rain, and the fish have just slid up shallow and they're aggressive. And I'm probably burning a little showgirl or I am throwing a top water prop bait and just watching it come through the waves and the fish just falling right behind and exploding. I just love that late, late summer, the first nasty cold front after the summer heat wave, the water temperatures start to drop and the fish come up shallow and uh, they go bonkers there. So that's, I, I just like have dreams about those days. And when I was in high school, I remember before I was a full-time fishing guide and I had a different job. When it when that day came, I would go nuts and my boss would be like, fine, get out of here. Because I knew like every 15 minutes that I missed on the water was one muskie that I wasn't going to catch that day. Back, you know, back in the heyday, people do ask still, some of my clients have been coming for like 15 years or more. And they'll, they'll say, what was, you know, or the new ones, either the ones that have been coming for a long time, they'll be like, you remember when we were, we, we caught like 40 fish and had 20 strikes and caught eight. And I'm like, yeah, it wasn't that today. And now, you know, people ask what it, because it just isn't the same. A good day today is, you know, at least on the metro here, if I go out and I see 10 fish, I, I'm, I'm happy with that. That's a great day. Catch two or three or four. I mean, that's a really good day. That was the average back before the pressure really hit. Um, and the fish were, I would, I'm not going to call them dumb, but I think they were kind of dumb. And today they're pretty dang smart. All right, Travis, that's that's a good answer. I like that. Like I said, we've never asked that on the on the podcast before. Kind of, you know, gets people in the in the mindset of what they're looking for on the water. But anyways, you talked about, you know, Minnesota muskies and you talked about Metro muskies. Let's talk about pressure. You know, before we get you out of here, do you have any tips for people um, that are looking to avoid pressure? Because, you know, that's one of those things that as the sport of muskie fishing grows, these fish become, you know, more educated. There's more anglers on the water. So spots can be sometimes at a bit of a premium. Obviously, there's tons of spots out there, but they can be a little bit. Do you have some tips for people? Yeah, I, I think really focusing on the majors, on the feeding windows, it's a, it's a huge deal, especially on pressured waters. I mean, I'll look at, you know, a lake in the metro that I fish a lot, and every muskie sees dozens of baits a day. But they still think it's food. They just don't eat it every time. And you just need to be there when they eat. So making sure those, those key feeding windows um, that you're casting over fish. That's obviously the most important thing. The other thing that I tell people a lot that I've noticed a trend in my, you know, I used to keep a pretty detailed log and 
I have found that city fish here in the metro, you know, it's like people get off work at five o'clock, you know, that night bite isn't as great as it once was. I just don't know if they're conditioned. They don't want to feed, even though the weather might be perfect. The night bite uh, has traditionally for me over the last 15 years, not been as good as the early morning bite. And it's just because I think there's not as many people out there in the morning. I like to get out there before sunrise. I find that the pre-sunrise bite on Metro Waters is the best bite in a 24-hour period. Um, and I just think the first bait that they see, if it happens to be yours, the chances of them moving on it are seem to be quite a bit better. After they've followed a bait up to a boat for the day, they're kind of like, all right, all right. Um, and then the other thing, too, is having confidence in what you're doing. If you know there's a fish there and just because you don't see it, just because it's not following doesn't mean it's not there. And just that confidence in marking a a fish, you know, putting a GPS pin on its back and coming back during the major, because these Metro fish are so pressured that it's almost like it's taken the follow out of them. You know, like when we first started musky fishing, even if they weren't hungry, they'd still follow it to the boat and be like, oh, sweet, there's one. You know, now, you, if I, an average day on metro pressured waters for me is I might see five fish. I'm probably going to have three, maybe four strikes. It's almost like 75% of the fish are going to eat if you get them to follow, or they're at least going to try to eat. Um, I use high percentage baits. I, I know that if I move them, uh, the chances of them striking are pretty high because they don't follow like they used to making sure my figure eight is perfect every single time, you know, and just using confidence baits during those feeding windows. I think that's kind of it in a nutshell. Well, Travis, I want to thank you for coming out and talking musky fishing with us. If somebody's looking to learn more about you, your guide service, your podcast, all that stuff, how can they go about doing that? Well, a variety of different places, I guess. Um, you know, for Do North Outdoors, you can just search Do North Outdoors. Uh, if you want to talk fishing with me, that's a separate field. My, my guide service is Trophy Encounters Guide Service. And uh, the TV shows are on different networks. So I guess it depends what you're interested in watching. But if you just search the name of each, you'll find information about them. Well, Travis, I feel like we kind of just scratched the surface. We went down a uh, long path on talking about Minnesota muskies, which is, you know, something we don't talk about a lot. I think the last time we actually talked about the future of Minnesota muskies was when we had the, we had a, a, a fellow on from the Minnesota DNR, and I can't remember how long ago that was. I want to say it was last summer, but for all I know, things go so fast, it was two summers ago. So it was good, to, <laughs> you know, good to talk about that. Love to have you back on again at some point if uh, if you're, you know, up for it. And, uh, you know, so again, we want to thank you for coming out and talking muskies with us. Absolutely. I appreciate everything you guys do. Thanks for having me on and listening to the information. I love, I love the fish and I love to talk about it. So I'd be happy to join you guys anytime. And if people have any other questions, I'm always happy to answer them too. Sure. Yeah. Your passion for musky fishing definitely shines through. And, you know, that's kind of what we all, we're all bonded by by one silly, stupid, crazy fish. And, you know, I, I mean, yeah. I couldn't help but think about it every time you talked about, like, you love to, you know, love to see, like, the muskie come up and, and smash a bait. And, you know, it's one of those things where I think that's kind of in all of us. If you, you know, if you see that once or you've gone through that experience one time, you want to see it many times. And, and that's what keeps us all coming back to this fish. 
Mm-hmm. I think everybody that fishes, when they tell you a story, it's almost always a big fish story. And usually it involves a muskie in some way, shape, or form. You see it once, you don't forget it. And that's the beauty of the fish. Whether you like them or not, you you hear people tell the story all the time about that one time when they had this four-foot fish following their bait, and they can never unsee it. It's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. We want to thank our listeners for coming out and listening to another podcast, and we'll catch everybody again with a new episode again next Wednesday. 